cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, April 17th, 2012. Mm -mm. Oh man, the sermon review for today, I'm already uh, in pain got the nervous giggle going on here. I I know what's coming in hour number two, and I... Oh, man. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the comparative work to see if what's being said really jives with God's word or, well, if it doesn't. And uh, the idea here is is that Jesus himself warns us about false Christ, false prophets, and uh, the apostles warn us about false teachers, uh, people who are introducing destructive heresies and drawing away disciples after themselves and their peculiar um, interpretations of Scripture that can't actually be squared with what the Bible says when you read it in context. And so the the idea is this, is that when you're at war, let's use a war metaphor. I've used this metaphor before, but here's the idea. You're you're at war. Let's and let's say you're fighting in World War II, you know, somehow time travel is possible and you get to have the supreme joy of being a grunt uh GI soldier in in Europe, you know, after D-Day, okay? And if you remember back, you know, to, if you've seen History Channel uh, documentaries on war, uh, then, you know, or World War II, there were, there were slogans, loose lips sink ships. And, you know, they would show pictures of, you know, of, of a guy heading off to, you know, to war. He was in his uh, uniform. And, and they were telling the, the uh, American people, don't say where he's at because that's how you get your loved one killed. And, and, and so the idea is this, is that there's an element of surprise that's necessary for, well, your, your opponent in war to win. You know, and so they, they, you talk about sneak attacks, about keeping secret information secret so that uh, the enemy is not aware of, of how you've planned to destroy them. You, you get what I'm saying. So the idea is this, is that in, in Christianity, 
I mean, it's not really a fair fight, and here's the reason why, is because Jesus himself told us what the enemy's going to do. He warned us ahead of time of the tactics of the strategy (laughs) that Satan would employ. And so it's, you know, with that being the case, I mean, it's pretty simple, okay? I mean, if you know that your enemy is going to attack your uh, your position at such and such a time using such and such weapons, at, you, know, at, you know, and they're going to attack at this point in in your in your lines. I mean, real simple. If you know that's what the enemy's going to do, you strategize accordingly. What you do is you place your troops where they're going to attack, when they're supposed to attack, and you use weaponry that would counter the weaponry going to be used by the enemy. It's real simple. In war, you don't want to lose. Losing's bad. Bad is, you know, and I mean that, just bad, bad, bad. So that's the idea, you know? And so when it comes to the attacks of the devil, this is a no-brainer. Okay, because because Jesus already gave us, like, the best intel, like, ever. Okay, I'm sorry if I'm sounding like a valley girl. It's not my intention, but, you know, like, for sure. You know, anyway, so, but the idea, I mean, you get it. I mean, Jesus told us, false Christ, false prophets who would try to lead away, you know, people astray, and to deceive, if possible, even God's elect. And so we know that this is what the enemy is going to do. He's going to send false teachers, false prophets, you know, people who are teaching destructive heresies. So that being the case, since we are t- technically all caught up in this war, so to speak, Jesus, who's already really defeated Satan, has told us what his lingering attacks are going to be. And so, well, let's prepare for it. Let's assume for a second that Jesus knew what he was talking about. Yeah, I happen to be one of those guys who thinks that Jesus actually knows what he's talking about. And that he gave us this information so that we would be prepared, so that we would join the battle when necessary, and so that Satan wouldn't catch us unaware. Not too tough. Not too tough. So that's the idea. We work from the the assumption that, well, Jesus knew what he was talking about. The apostles knew what they were talking about. And they told us ahead of time that things would be this way. And so, therefore, to join the battle, so to speak, and to do what's necessary to effectively and efficiently fight in the battles that, you know, that come as a result of our enemy, the devil. All we got to do is say, hey, wait a second. Jesus said there's going to be people out there, it, wolves dressed up like sheep. Mm-hmm. They're going to in, introduce destructive heresies. Mm-hmm. They're going to, they're going to uh, perform false signs and false wonders and lead people. Okay, got it. Jesus told us these guys were coming. So that being the case, let's look out there. Hang on, let me pull out my binoculars. All right. And, and look to see if anyone fits the description. <laughs> It's not hard. And, you know, a, a tip off, a, like one of those things where you can sit there and go, wait a second. I think what we have is see, one of those one of those guys that Jesus warned us about, you know, those wolves in sheep's clothing, those false teachers, false prophets, those heretics, is that if I open up the Bible while listening to them teach and what they're saying doesn't match with what's in the scripture that person is not telling the truth. They're one of the people that Jesus warned us about. So we got to get get them. You know, that's <laughs> that's it. Go get them. You know, 
So that, you know, so, you know, it, it when it comes, I mean, seriously, it, intelligence is everything when it comes to war. And we know what the enemy's going to do. Jesus didn't leave us hanging in the breeze here, just, you know, flapping around going, I don't know, Satan's going to attack. I have no idea what he's going to do. No, we know, we know, he told us. So did the apostles. They actually believe Jesus too. So let's do this. Let's trust them that they knew what they were talking about. Let's take them seriously. You know, when it talks about wolves and sheep's in clothing, that that's it doesn't mean that they're actual physical wolves trying to dress up in real lamby clothes. That that you know, that's just not gonna work. But the idea is, is that it's the metaphor that they're agents of the evil one posing as the good guys, trying to hide what they really are, trying to you know, hide the teeth, you know, uh, little, you know, big bad wolf style, little red white riding hood style. Oh, yo, granny, what big teeth you have there. What, what a big nose you got there. <laughs> Are you sure you're my grandma? Yeah, that's the idea. So Jesus told us that was going to happen. So we assume he's right. And then we just go out there and look accordingly. And we, we, in fact, what I do on a daily basis is scan the headlines, listen to sermons, follow current trends popular teachers and 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 folks like that and and here's the deal you know there's a lot of folks that i'm aware of and um you know there's guys out there who i consider brothers in christ and i'm thankful that they preach christ and him crucified for our sins they proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins some of the particulars in their theology doesn't match up with what i believe scripture is teaching but for the most part you know hey I, i i hear the gospel being preached and they and they make every effort to handle god's word you know, I'm not going to bother them. Okay, it's the guys where you know over and again, you know, you know, I can randomly pick a sermon, just go to a random point in the sermon, and sure enough, I'm not hearing God's word rightly handled. Those are the guys I want to bring to your attention because it's useful and instructive to show you what to look for, so that you know we taking Jesus's idea seriously. So that we know where the enemy is attacking us and we can join the battle, give a biblical response, give a biblical rebuke, give a biblical answer for why that isn't what God's word teaches. Because what's at stake are people's souls. What's at stake are people who will either spend eternity with Christ and his kingdom or spend eternity, well, in the lake of fire, which is not going to be a a pleasant experience. It's going to be weeping, gnashing of teeth. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing that we're discussing here. So that's what's at stake. We take it seriously. We also try to have a little bit of fun along the way, which by the way, uh, when it, (laughs) some people that causes them to experience weeping and gnashing of teeth, but listen, you know, sometimes humor is the best apologetic. That's all. That's all I'm going to say there. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of fighting for the faith. Now I already hinted at the fact that we've got, (laughs) Oh man, I wow, I I I got to tell you, okay, I don't want to influence the outcome of this content uh, contest. You know, uh, my job is to you know go and search and and listen to the nominees that you've uh, presented for my consideration, uh, throw into the mix the ones that I had in mind, uh, and narrow it down and you know get our nominees for worst Easter sermon. That's my job, and then to play them and critique them along the way, and then ultimately you get to vote. You know, last year I had a favorite. I got to tell you, I had a favorite, and I was surprised that my favorite didn't win. I, that's, you know, it's still, you know, deep down in my psyche. I, I feel like, you know, I my uh, my soul has been tattooed. 
<clears throat> anyway, this year, got to tell you, I have a favorite. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. But I, and I don't want to necessarily divulge it. But I could, I could tell you this. You know, at the moment, it's either today's sermon or tomorrow's. That's all I'm saying. It's either today's or, to and we might even do two tomorrow. So that I mean that that that's, but uh, you know, wow. I'm not going to tell you who uh, we're reviewing. I'm not going to tell you the name of the sermon, but I, yeah, I, who, yeah, that uh, that warning that we play here at Fighting for the Faith on a regular basis definitely comes to mind. In fact, let me play it uh, kind of in anticipation for um, the sermon review today. That's you know, so again, this is necessary as a, as well as a public service as a health warning, um, you know, things like that. So, you know, this is the only warning you're going to get, and you got to get the uh, this that, you know, we're, what, 45, 50 minutes away from before, you know, the time when we actually listen to today's uh, contestant in the Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. So if you, you got to take this seriously. You know, here, here, here. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. All right, let's just dive into the program proper. Got a Patricia King update. Yeah, you know, when was the last time you slayed your giants? You know, because everybody knows somehow that the story of David and Goliath is really about you. Yeah, here's Patricia King to explain. Many people struggle with fears and phobias, and those very things keep them from doing what God's called them to do and what God's called them to be. Maybe you. Yeah, could you imagine? You know, you know, if God has called you to be, you know, a, you know, an insect exterminator, and you have arachnophobia. I mean, wow, that would be tough. Can I identify fears that hold you back, or, or phobias that hold you back? I have a CD. It's called Slay Your Giants, and I'm sure you do. I, I wonder how much it costs. Um, in it, we talk about overcoming and making our giants our trophies, and that's yeah. See, no, listen. You know, my wife has a particular way in which she's decorated our home, and I don't think she would really appreciate it if you know I decided that I was going to start you know, making giants into trophies and then, you know, displaying them here in the house. That might get a little weird. Although, you know, it would make Halloween kind of fun. But, yeah, uh, sorry, I just got to pass. I'm really not interested in messing with the decor of my home and, you know, having a bunch of giants that I've slain, you know, be trophies in my house. But strange idea. Okay. You know. What I'm believing for you right now, if you have a fear that that very thing that you fear will become your trophy because you overcome it. If you have. Yeah. So, I mean, so if you have, if you suffer from arachnophobia, yeah, which by the way, I get, you know, spiders are kind of creepy, icky critters. I don't particularly care for them myself. In fact, whenever I see them in the house, I immediately grab a Kleenex and and see how well they swim after I flush the toilet. But you know, so, so if so, if you suffer from arachnophobia, 
you know, this idea of overcoming your phobia and then turning a spider into a trophy. Ooh, yeah. Um, the neighbors might talk. A binding fear like a phobia that 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 torments you, that it will become your trophy because you will overcome it. And so I just want to basically today um, minister to some of those fears. There's many kinds. You know, it just makes you wonder what, you know, what does the word minister mean in that sentence? I mean, I have yet to see Patricia King minister, you, you know, in, in any kind of a biblical sense. It's a different fears. There's many things that that hold people back. And the Lord's been giving me some specific ones. But, you know, the. Oh, no. Now we got specific uh, phobias given to her by God. Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power. Of a sound mind. Yeah, that spirit of fear that's, what is that? It's from one of the uh, pastoral epistles. Uh, early on, it's like in, uh, is it First Timothy chapter 1 or Second Timothy chapter 1? It's one of those two. But the point is, is that, yeah, the Apostle Paul there writing to uh, uh, Pastor Timothy isn't talking about overcoming phobias. Okay, spirit of fear. You know, it, you know there's other passages that kind of flesh this concept out. Uh, the idea being this. Um, that, you know, we are not to fear God in this sense. There's a right way to fear God and a wrong way to fear God. Right way to fear God has to do with understanding that he is holy and just and that he is the justifier of those who trust in him by faith. So fear him in the sense that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the King of kings, Lord of lords. Fear him uh, by right of of who he is as our creator, okay? The kind of fear that the Apostle Paul is talking about there in that passage has to do with fear of judgment. We do not, as Christians, need to fear God in judgment. Our sins are forgiven. Christ has died for us. He has propitiated the wrath of God, and we have a right standing before God because of that. So that's what the Apostle Paul's getting at in that passage. He's not talking about overcoming, you know, fears that, you know, that psychologically might cause you to, you know, to bunch up so that you can't, you know, do your job, you know, arachnophobia, or, you know, maybe you're afraid of germs and things like that. You know, I I remember reading an article not too long ago, it, apparently in Japan, you know, germophobia is a big deal. I mean, you got people who literally, whenever they go out in public, they put on surgical masks and, you know, they wear gloves, or if they touch anything, they're always doing the hand sanitizer th- Thing. Which, by the way, makes me wonder. I mean, you know, do you think Todd Friel's obsession with hand sanitizer represents, you know, like germophobia that maybe Patricia King could solve this, you know, and then he can like, you know, maybe have a trophy there at the uh, studios out there at Wretched where he can put a big germ up as, you know, as a, as a slain giant trophy right there in the studio. Maybe I shouldn't let my mind wander like that. Let's continue. And so I just decree that over you. Yeah, get to it. You know, see, she's ministering right now by decreeing things over people. You know, one of the ways to overcome uh-huh. fear is yeah. to face your fear. Right. Right Right into its face. You- so the next time, if you have arachnophobia, next time you see a spider, get down on the ground and just look that little guy right in the eyes. Face your fear. And then you just take the authority of Jesus and you overcome it. You, yeah, you, you decree things to that spider, you know. Face it with courage and you just... Does that mean I need a microscope if I have germophobia? If it's in order to face the fear, I've got to look at the germs, you know, dead in its little... Do germs have eyes? 
You just go for it. You never run from your fear. Don't run, but run right into it. Yeah. And you will see that as you do that, your fear will dissolve. I remember speaking with some. We'll see if it dissolves. How am I supposed to make it a trophy and you know put it in my house? Someone not that long ago, who was a a woman. She was in her forties and yeah. she really uh, wanted to be married, but was actually afraid of intimate relationship because she'd been hurt. She'd been no, that makes perfect sense. Now he, here's the deal. I mean, that's a legitimate. That's a legitimate issue. I mean, see if you, okay if you know somebody or maybe you are somebody you know who you know. You're you're getting on in years, and you know you're just having well problems uh, in relationships because you know you've been burned really bad. Maybe you you know you've had a boyfriend or a girlfriend cheat on you, or you know or whatever, and and so you're gun shy when it comes to relationships. That's a legitimate problem. That being the case, why would you go to Patricia King to help with that legitimate problem? You you might want to go to somebody who's qualified to help you work through that. Um. And, you know, and, you know, number one, your pastor, I mean, because there may be a forgiveness you may not have really properly forgiven that person and, and really would be holding a grudge and, and being unforgiving. That may be part of all of this. And then, you know, somebody who actually knows what they're doing, you know, who's qualified, trained to help you. I mean, going to Patricia King with a problem like that, as far as I'm concerned, it'd be like if I had a broken arm going to, you know, a shaman witch doctor or a voodoo priestess. I mean, so they can throw chicken bones or something, you know, and, and you know, and come up with some kind of a spell to solve my, you know, my broken arm problem. But when in reality, what you want to do is go to like the emergency room. You know, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, it, uh. it hurt in the past. And, and, um, and uh, some of the situations that she'd walked through were really painful. And yeah. she'd open up her heart and then it would get crushed. And she'd open up again and it would get crushed. And so she was afraid because of her, her past. She was afraid. With good reason. Again, why would you go to Patricia King with a legitimate issue like this? Of getting her heart crushed. And so for a period of about seven years, she just closed herself off to, to any kind of relationship. Yeah. So I'm not going to set myself up. So she had this expectation of being let down and crushed instead of an expectation of things working out. Now, if you have a fear that says to you, this is going to happen and it's the worst thing, it's what you feared. You know, I believe that if I get into another relationship, I'm just going to be let down. So therefore, you see, that belief is based on fear. But if you don't overcome that fear, then you're actually setting yourself up for it to happen. Okay. And so you've got to face that fear or else it will happen over and over and over again. And it is not a good option just to stay away from from what you fear, like this girl had done. All right, now let me give you like a real world example. Okay, so so let's say that you were at a church and your pastor really hurt you, okay? Um, you ended up leaving that church and you're like nowhere, okay? Because you're afraid of having to go through that again because it was an extremely painful situation. Believe me, I understand this. I've been through a similar situation. That being the case, decreeing and declaring and staring your phobia in the face and all that kind of stuff, you know, it sounds like, you know, wow, that's really brave and all this kind of, it's, 
I'm telling you, what she's recommending here is quack science. It's not even science. It's just quackery. It's spiritual quackery. Um, You know, in a situation like that, you know, I'm telling you, the gospel really is the cure. And being able to talk that out so that you can, you know, get your head around why you're having this visceral reaction is a big deal. I mean, I've talked with many people over the years who've been in, in churches where they have been burned badly. And the thought of going to another church is just not there. I mean, they would rather be nowhere than somewhere because somewhere they, they, you know, they, they are afraid. They, I mean, some people physically shake because of what's happened to them, how badly they've been abused in other churches. It's important to understand this. It was not Jesus who abused you in that situation. And in a similar situation, if you're having a, you know, a relationship phobia, Okay, it's it's important to understand not all guys or not all girls are like the bad relationship that you've that you've been through, and you're hurt and the feelings you're going through legitimate, completely understandable. But Patricia King, slaying your giants, going to her for help, oi! No, I don't think she has much to offer here. For seven years, she wouldn't go near a man. She would. She was being invited out by men, but she would say no because she was afraid of getting involved and being hurt. Yeah. And so um, I finally said to her, well, um, do you want to stay single the rest of your life? No, I'm afraid of that. So I said, well, you're afraid of being single. You're afraid of being yeah. alone into your... Why do I feel like this is like a chick conversation? your older years of life but you're afraid of relationships yeah, so you've yeah. shut yourself off for any option of being married any option of being in in a meaningful relationship and it's all propelled by fears yeah but faith it says in the scripture first john 5 19 it says it, it says this is the victory that overcomes the world even your faith <laughs> hmm. <laughs> yeah, First John 5 isn't talking about your faith in faith. <laughs> You're talking about your faith in Christ. Again, legitimate problems, legitimate issues. Anyone who's been through, you know, situations like this know exactly what she's talking about. Believe me when I tell you, you know, it's like that woman, you know, you remember the story, I call it the story of the two daughters. Uh, Jarius, the, uh, the synagogue ruler, you know, he comes to Jesus and, and tells him that his daughter is at the point of death and, uh, and, you know, Jesus needs to come quickly. So Jesus is on his way, uh, to, uh, Jarius's house to heal his daughter. When along comes this woman who has an issue of blood, and she's suffered with this issue for 12 years. For 12 years, she has been ceremonially unclean. And it says that basically she spent all of her money on doctors, and nothing helped. Okay, Now, that passage isn't, isn't teaching us anything. I'm using that as a metaphor. Going to Patricia King is the equivalent of that poor woman going to these doctors who didn't know what they were doing, trying to help solve her problem, and they not being able to help her, and at the end of it, she's penniless and still bleeding. Same situation here. If you got a problem like this, Patricia King, again, is not going to be the person you're going to want to go to to get help. Okay, another quick story before we go to our break. When we come back from the break, by the way, uh, we're going to be uh, doing our Presence 2012 conference stuff. I, you know, I want to play some more of the things that, um, well, uh, Phil Pringle was up to in priming the pump for his miracle offering service. Yeah, that's what they call it, miracle offerings. You know, you gotta, you know, you know, get, you know, get up enough faith to give all you got so that you know God will be impressed, and then you know. 
provide a miracle in your life. Terrible, terrible theology. We'll get to that on the other ha- uh, other side of the break. But I got a news story I want to get to. From the Christian Post, headline reads, New English translation of Bible omits Jesus Christ and angel. Yeah, by the way, this this headline is a bit misleading. Um, and yeah, I'll explain here in a second. Uh, Michael uh, uh, Grabowski of the Christian Post writes, he says, A new translation of the Bible into English does not contain the name Jesus Christ, you know, Jesus Christ, that's, you know, it, it, where Jesus appears, uh, Yesu, uh, Jesus does appear, but when it, it when it says Yesu Christos, okay, Jesus Christ, um, they've, they've decided that they're not going to use the phrase Jesus Christ, but do something else. And also the word angel doesn't appear, and it also prefers the word emissary over apostle, and the name of the translation is The Voice. That's right, the voice. Uh, a Bible that replaces Jesus Christ with terms like Jesus the Anointed One. It has a, <laughs> it had its complete edition released by Thomas Nelson Publishing last month. And Frank Couch, Thomas Nelson's lead editor on the project, told the Christian Post that the purpose of the voice was to make the gospel message easier to understand for modern audiences. Now, by the way, I happen to have in my possession... The voice, okay? Now, um, I have the original New Testament, okay, version of the voice, because uh, these folks have been working on this for a while. And um, and then today, for my uh, Kindle, hang on a second here, I downloaded a... Uh, a sample of the of the latest. So this is really not exactly a new translation. This is kind of a updated and revised translation of the um, of the Bible that Thomas Nelson has been working on. But I think it's important to note. You know, see, because you'll notice here that Michael Grabowski is kind of pointing out that s- something ain't right about this translation. Uh, y- y'all remember. Uh, uh, yeah, that comedian that you know, you might be a redneck. Jeff Jeff Foxworthy, that's his name. You know, Jeff Foxworthy. Yeah, he he, he uh, in his stand-up comedy routine, um, he talks about you know the fact that um, you know that at his house, um, his mailbox somebody had written on there M A L E might tip you off to the fact that there's something something ain't right, and uh, so same thing here. Uh, this is one of those things where the, this particular <clears throat> translation is uh, translated by the Ecclesia Bible Society, and boy, does it have quite an interesting lineup of folks that have participated in producing this particular <clears throat> translation. Um, I'll certainly give you some highlights here. Chris Say, uh-huh, yeah. Brian McLaren, mm-hmm. Um, Leonard <laughs> Sweet, Phyllis Tickle, um... <laughs> <laughs> in fact, let me let me read to you. <clears throat> um, this is a in the opening portion of the the new and revised and updated translation of the voice. Um, they, they, they've, they, there's a section called a word from the Ecclesia Bible Society. See if see if any of this makes any sense to you. Um, I speak for every artist, musician, editor, writer, and scholar involved in this project. 
when I tell you that we are all honored to have a small part in the sacred work of translating the scriptures. It has been an honor to have labored, studied, fasted, and prayed over the work that we believe God has placed before us. We have not taken the task lightly, and through the process, we have been changed. And we are thrilled to see the ways that God uses his word to speak to his people and reveal himself to those who have never heard his voice. Clearly. Now, again, prominent people working on this translation include Brian McLaren, Leonard Sweet, Phyllis Tickle, (laughs) Chris Say. Um, hmm, hmm. Yeah, in fact, when the the New Testament version came out originally, I mean, (laughs) it reminded me some of the stuff was so, um, how shall I say, they took such liberties with some biblical passages that I liken it to the emergent version of the New World Translation that the um, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses use. So let me read a little bit more of the story, though. Um, <clears throat> the voice has not claimed to be more accurate than any other translation. Rather, it's more easily understood than any other translation, said Couch. Quote, when translators are limiting themselves to conveying the complete essence of a word, from the Hebrew or Greek with one English word, they have difficulty bringing in the nuances held in the original language. Of course, that's true, you know, um, which every translator understands. I mean, if you ever spend any time working through a biblical text in either Hebrew or Greek and trying to bring it into English, you get the fact that there's some limitations because it's it's not a code, you know. This word equals that word. You know, in, instead, it's more like this word, rep- you know, kind of conveys this thought, and there's nothing in English that exactly represents it. So you have to come up with a rough approximation, and you can either do it word for word or thought for thought. These are, this is a standard understanding here, but apparently they've figured it out. Um, let's see. So because other translations have more literal renderings, Couch believe they, they are why it has been necessary for commentators and preachers to spend so much time explaining uh, the, what the words in the original language mean before they lay, uh, the lay reader can understand fully a text of Scripture. Quote, because we have a more expansive translating technique, which involves artists and musicians and playwrights and folks like that, we, <laughs> we can more fully develop the English translation and thus bring out the more difficult nuances found in the original language, he explained. These scholars and authors, by the way, which include Brian McLaren and Phyllis Tickle and Leonard Sweet, um, uh, <laughs> who collaborated on the translation, say that their intention was to help readers get this, quote, hear God speaking. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, the voice. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's if you, if you spend any time reading the voice, either the old version or the newly revised re- version of the voice, it becomes very clear that they've taken some artistic liberty with um, how they render the text. In fact, there's a lot of commentary in, in, in there, and it kind of reads like more like a screenplay, you know, when Jesus appears, you know, it says Jesus, you know, and so if you're familiar with like, you know, me, maybe reading like, you know, Shakespeare or something like that, you know, with a part of, you know, this Julius Caesar or, you know, Brutus or whoever, you know, you know it, it says who the person's supposed to say, be saying, it, it reads and the format is like a screenplay, and which by the way, I find to be more distracting than helpful, you know, you know, I understand what I'm saying? In fact, you know, why don't I go ahead and read to you, you know, some of the interest, more interesting passages from The Voice so that you can, you know, kind of get an idea, you know, of what it is that Brian McLaren and 
Leonard Sweet and Phyllis Tickle and these artists and musicians have come up with as far as a Bible translation is concerned. <clears throat> yeah, let's see if any of this makes any sense here. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, I'll begin. Before time itself was measured, the voice was speaking. The voice was and is God. The celestial voice remained ever present with the Creator. His speech shaped the entire cosmos. Immersed in the practice of creating, all things that exist were birthed in Him. His breath filled all things with a living, breathing light, light that thrives in the depths of darkness, blazing through murky bottoms. It cannot and will not be quenched. <laughs> Verse 9, the true light who shines upon the heart of everyone was coming into the cosmos. He does not call out from a distant place, but draws near. He enters our world, a world he made and speaks clearly. Yet he, his creation did not recognize him. Though the voice utters only truth, his own people who have heard the voice before rebuff this inner calling and refuse to listen. But those who hear and trust the beckoning of the divine voice and embrace him, they shall be reborn as children of God." Oh man, I mean I mean listen to this. I mean this thing is oozing and dripping with postmodern gnosticism. This is crazy stuff. <clears throat> uh, verse um verse 16. Through this man we all receive gifts of grace beyond our imagination. He is the voice of God. You see, Moses gave us rules to live by, but Jesus the liberating king offered the gift of grace and truth which make life worth living. <laughs> yeah, in none of my translations of the Gospel of John end up any saying anything like that. Here, uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, John chapter 3, um, 20. Some of humankind hated the light and so avoided its warm glow. They scampered hurriedly back into the darkness where vices thrive and wickedness flourishes. Those who abandon deceit and embrace what is true, they will enter into the light where it will be clear that all their deeds come from God. You know, I mean, I'm telling you, I mean, this thing, I, I, this is not a faithful translation. And, you know, in fact, in the past, when this thing came out, I offered, you know, a critique of this thing. Uh, from the from the Greek itself, um, you know, it, <clears throat> let me John chapter fourteen. Jesus says, "I am the path, the truth, and the energy of life. No one comes to the Father except through me." <laughs> so Jesus is the energy of life. Okay, um, yeah, that's creepy, um, and that's not even what that text says at all. Um, <clears throat> Yeah. It, anyway, I could I could give other examples, but you know, I, like I said, I've you know years ago when I got the uh, New Testament version of the Voice, it was painfully clear this is not a faithful translation. Anyway, but so hey, if you if you're interested in hearing God speak and uh, you're and uh, you need assistance of guys like Brian McLaren, Leonard Sweet, Chris Say, and Phyllis Tickle, then you know, and all other artists and musicians and folks like that, and you know, to help you hear God speaking. Um, well, you know, the voice, the voice is, uh, well, the translation for you. As for me, I will be passing. I <laughs> will stick with my ESV and my Lutheran study Bible, as well as my Greek New Testament and Hebrew Old Testament for studying God's Word. And I will not be, <clears throat> I'm just going to assume that McLaren, Sweet, 
Tickle and Chris Say and the folks like that, that their weird postmodern emergent theology has somehow tainted the this so-called translation, and I'll just avoid it like the plague. But, you know, thanks. No, thanks, Thomas Nelson. I, I appreciate all the work that you put into it, but I'll be passing this time. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me uh, regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait! Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Uh, warning. Uh, you know, listen, a, a bad tree can't bear b- good fruit. Yeah, so you may not want to get that translation by the bunch of people who are emergent postmoderns, some of whom have denied the Christian faith. You know, just saying, you know, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46. Zero three eight. All right, let's introduce our new music here. Uh, one of the listeners on my Facebook wall suggested this, and I completely agreed. See if you remember this, you know, hit from well the early nineties. It was on a divine visitation that the Lord told me that I was to go on the television. I was lying on the bed, and the bed began to go around, and I had the sensation like I was on a merry-go-round. And then the furniture joined in, and then I was in the stars. There were stars everywhere, above me, below me, to the left of me, to the right of me. Millions and millions of stars. And the Lord said, the stars, the souls that you will win for me. The Lord actually talks to me, you know. I hear what Spagus said. And he said to me, get me $18 million by the weekend. And the angel of the Lord stands by my side and speaks into my ear. It's a beautiful thing. And I hear what Spagus said. It's a marvelous, marvelous experience. I never thought such a thing could happen in the name of Jesus.
Now, funny enough, I, I'm i not familiar with this song. In fact, uh, the, the gentleman who introduced me to the song, his name is Josh, and I'm not sure what town Josh lives in. Um, Josh, thank you for posting this on my uh, on my Facebook wall. We, we're going to have to put that in the mix uh, when we uh, do televangelist updates because we got money songs and, and things like that. But uh, this one, uh, Phil Collins just nails it. I mean, he absolutely nails it. And if you want to see the video, I put it up on my Facebook wall as well as tweet it out. But i got to warn you, you know, there's a section in the... Uh, in the video that's slightly racy um kind of they wanted to make the point that these guys are a little bit hypocritical when it comes to things pertaining to you know sex so uh, as a result of it even though it was like in 1991 in fact it's kind of weird because when you're watching the video i mean it's like a blast to the past of you know of what tbn used to look like these guys nail it you know weird goofy stepford wife kind of looking stuff and, and so anyway, yeah. thank you, Josh, for uh, for pointing that out to me. And like I said, we'll be using that in the future here at Fighting for the Faith. Now, we've been covering through the uh, the work of Jake Elliott, uh, who, uh, a student who lives down in Australia. He he, run, he runs the C3ChurchWatch.blogspot.com uh, website. And uh, he has done a yeoman's work in getting us information and getting me videos so that we can uh, begin to you know, take this burrito, I mean, this large burrito that's called the Presence 2012 Conference, start to cut it up into bite-sized pieces and take a look at what is going on down there. And it's a, it is a significant note that Stephen Furtick uh, spoke several times at this. He was the, the guy who primed the pump for one of the offerings there. And it's clear, you know, st- you know how, how did Darth Vader put it, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, your your transition to the dark side is now complete. Yeah, you know, I that's when I think about Stephen Furtick. You know, he's he's now you know he is no longer stuck his toe into the um, prosperity pimp, uh, you know, fleece people for money type of stuff. I mean, he's jumped into the pool head first, headlong. He's in there now, and he's a full blown prosperity pimp. We only expect things to get worse with him. But uh, to give you a, a, a you know, uh, we kind of started this and haven't finished it yet of uh, what's, you know, what it is that Phil Pringle did there uh, for his miracle offering. I want you to hear a little bit more of this. There's some things he said in this that, are, I mean, it's just blasphemous. But folks, listen. Phil Pringle is not an isolated guy. He's not the only one out there doing this kind of stuff. In fact, there is a whole new generation of TBN prosperity preachers who are robbing people blind, all in the name of Jesus. And here's the deal. Until they either die or stand before Christ and have a get, have to give an accounting, we 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 got to keep in mind that Jesus warned us about these guys and our job is to warn the flock and to warn people that this isn't the biblical gospel these guys are charlatans these are people who are making merchandise of people in the name of Christ they are blaspheming Jesus name and he is not going to be happy uh you know on the last day when when it comes time to, you know to open the book these guys i mean somebody asked me said Chris do you think these guys believe the biblical gospel to which i said um, how come if I if they did, how come I never hear him preach it? You know, out of the heart, the mouth speaks kind of thing. If you really believe the biblical gospel, and, and you know, and you're a pastor, you would think that that's the thing you preach, right? You understand what I'm saying? Anyway, so um, let me. You know, so I kind of want to pick up where things left off 
in uh, the the video that we uh, that we played uh, a couple of days ago on, on you know last week on fighting for the faith, and I want you to hear you know kind of how they're setting people up, creating this somehow this expectation for this miracle offering. Yeah, you know? and we showed you this in part last week where we you know, the, that family got on. You know, they apparently you know couldn't have kids. They gave an outrageous amount of money to Phil Pringle. And blammo, you know, now they've got babies. You know, um, watch how this kind of continues. There's a little bit of interplay that takes place on the stage. All of this is manipulation, priming the pump in people's minds, planting the thought in their minds that, you know, that, you know, that it's, it's almost, you know what it reminds me of? I'll tell you this before we get, you know, before I play the audio. <clears throat> If y'all y'all um ever have small kids and they believe in Santa Claus and you know it's you know they're 4 years old it's Christmas Eve and you know th- their their eyes are as big as saucers they can't sleep and it, of course part of the reason is because you've told them you know a cri- Santa Claus is coming tonight <gasps> you know and it, that, that's a kind of that that's what this reminds me of it reminds me of a parent who taught their kid that Santa Claus exists and you know they're preparing you know them for Christmas you know and you know and so what they're doing is is that you know creating this this expectation that Santa Claus is going to show up uh, that's what this reminds me of here listen in head out is Paul here this afternoon you guys here he be yellow here in the in the video this is uh a really powerful time of faith, commitment, sacrifice, stepping out. Notice the sappy, emotional, manipulative music. And uh, I, want to, I want to talk to Richard Forsyth. He, he was just telling me about something amazing that happened for him. In fact, somebody came up to me, Richard, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the break right then, and they said, you know, you said you had a, like a thousand miracles. He said one just happened. I just got a phone call. That's it's awesome. awesome. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, really? A miracle just happened? <gasps> Maybe one will happen for me, too. Quick, get out the checkbook, honey. Doug, he just ran up to me and said, I just, just had this miracle happen right here, right now. It's so, amazing. you know, it's already, it's already started happening even before the house. service. You know, yeah. God's so, you know, like he's, he's into it, right? Totally into it. Doesn't even wait for me. No. Yeah, see, see, God, the Holy Spirit. I mean, He's just itching, you know, to, you know, to, you know, give people miracles. You know, He's not even see God, the Holy Spirit. He's not even waiting for Phil Pringle to finish his spiel. Uh, He's already like Santa Claus. He's like, you know, got a big bag and he's starting to throw out miracles already. Kind of prime the pump. That was good. Yeah, Yeah, right. (laughs) It's quick. Tell us what's going on. What's going on? Uh, A few years ago, I was uh, sitting here in the. This auditorium and, uh, you know, we've been giving miracle offerings. We've got so many stories about miracles and finances, but uh, we gave... I'm sure you got a ton of stories. Miracle offering and I was at work the following uh, Monday and I just felt the Holy Spirit say, go and speak to the person in HR. So I went to speak to the person in HR. They were a Seventh-day Adventist and they'd been having a lot of problems with staff. And uh, she said, how come the staff person has turned around? I said, well... They've actually become Christians. That's why you're not having any problems with them anymore. And she said, I said, can I talk to you about my bonus? And she said, uh, yes. I said, well, my bonus is based on this part of the business. And uh, God gave me an amazing idea years ago. And I said, it actually affects both parts of this business. This part of the business was affected by the GFC. This one wasn't. 
But when you put them both together, I could get a bonus. And so she said, just leave it with me. I came back next week and she totally changed my contract and uh, I got a 21% bonus on my annual salary that year. Praise God. Wow, he got a 21% bonus. I wonder how much it cost him in an offering. I mean, that's the miracle he purchased, isn't it? They're amazing. So, really just get involved. And I just, can I just say, I've just seen so many miracles over the years. I came here with my daughter. Uh, we're not supposed to have kids. And uh, she's over in love is, so is my son. And uh, just get involved in them. Just I mean, you, you, the you, your, your wife got healed, right? She got healed, yes. Right, right at the start. Yep, okay. yep. She wasn't supposed to... The doctors didn't think she was going to make it. They said we could never have kids. And we've just seen so many miracles on our they lives. Yeah, because they, you know, gave money. Too beautiful. They, they bought those miracles. A lot less expensive than actual surgery, I'm sure. It's... That's awesome. It's astonishing. It's amazing. Richard is a great man of God, doing an amazing thing. Hartley and Natalie Taylor, where are you guys? I want to I want to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, come up here. Yeah, fantastic. Again, all of this, this is, you know, to create the expectation. God is in the house, man, and he's ready to give out miracles. You know, like Santa Claus, Santa Claus gives out toys, you know, but, you know, see, see, here's the deal. You know, Santa Claus, he's looking to see who's naughty and nice, right? Well, the Holy Spirit that they believe in, he's in the house, and he, oh, man, he... He's wanting to give out miracles like you wouldn't believe. But see, he's got a list, and he's checking it twice, um, and it looks like an accounting spreadsheet. And, <laughs> yeah, there's a column in there. How much did you give? How much was left over? What's the percentage? And so, and see, you know, got, he wants to give you a miracle, but, you know, the the, the spreadsheet's got to look right because he's got a spreadsheet, and he's checking it twice. He wants to give you, you know, miracles. It, he's really excited about that too, but you we gotta we gotta see what the spreadsheet looks like first. And uh, two years ago, you're saying after being unsuccessful and buying our first home, t talk about that. Yeah, we uh, two years ago I was at this conference. I've been so if you're having real estate issues, I mean, you know, so if you're you're suffering from an inability to purchase, you know, a home or something like that, and maybe you're you're in an inadequate facility, you know. You know, new homes, I mean, even existing homes. I mean, buying a home, that we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and, you know, it's a competitive market out there. You know, it might be tough, especially, you know, if there's like, you know, fewer homes than there are, uh, then, you know, the, the demand isn't meeting, or the supply isn't meeting the demand. I mean, whew. yeah, well, you know, you need an inside edge. We'll see the Roman Catholics, when they need a miracle when it comes to, um, you know, selling a house. Um, they they take a, a St. Joseph statue, um, yeah, and they bury it in the front yard. No kidding. Um, so, I mean, this is kind of like that. For over nine years, how blessed am I, by the way. And uh, I just we just could not get a house. I had felt like I'd driven through every street of the entire northern beaches. I'd looked at so many houses and never would one of them work out. I had real estates disappear on me just... Every door shut and shut and shut. And I was uh, obviously nine years into marriage, two kids. We were living in a duplex that just had not good people upstairs. They were having parties. I was having guys having fights. It, it's, don't you, have, you know this is like a template? You know, it's like, you know, I mean, terrible things. I mean, it, 
you know, for years, for decades, I have suffered from ingrown toenails. I, you know, I gotta tell you, they're really, really painful. And, you know, and, you know, from time to time when they crop up, oh man, my toes ache. Boy, do they hurt. You know, it's pain. And I gotta dig those things out and, oh, yeah, it's terrible. And, you know, and, and then I gave money to Phil Pringle. And, and, and you know what? <laughs> my toes look like they've been, you know, I've been getting a pedicure every week, you know, for, <laughs> It's, uh, that's the template. I mean, uh, you, you, I've been suffering. And nothing was curious. This is a terrible thing. And then I gave money, and blammo, you know, it's fixed. Oh, the window with two kids in the house, and I was going, this is it, God. So actually, before the miracle offering, I got up that morning, went for a, a prayer walk. I sat in the sun in the city. I said, you went for a what? A prayer walk. Okay. God, I need a house. Help me to get a house. And I really felt God say, I want you to give 15 thousand dollars into the miracle offerings what oh whoa (laughs) so he went on he went on (laughs) wow that is a huge amount of money okay so yeah um okay so the guy you know nothing was working he couldn't get a house he went on a prayer walk and and god told him give fifteen thousand dollars I went back to Nat, share that with her. Nat is just awesome. She's like, absolutely, come on. I reckon if I said 225. (laughs) Nat is always into, always into giving, which is great. So we came down. Now, my credit card doesn't have a limit like that. So I put a little plan for the accounts department. (laughs) I want you to charge this much and this much and set out a little plan over the coming months. But what ends up happening is the day the very last payment gets charged to my credit card, 48 hours later, I'm in a real estate office out at Oatlands, and I'm signing for my first house. Wow. And it was- yeah, by the way, the uh, logical fallacy in play here is called post hoc ergo propter hoc. Uh, my wife refers to it as post hoc ergo poppycock. It means after this, therefore, because of this. Um, yeah, um, see, you know, it, is it, is it coincident? Here's the deal. Uh, folks, I mean, I'm not even convinced this is a miracle. I, you know, it's one of those things where, hmm, okay, yeah, you gave money and then after the, okay, so the timing's odd, but see, here's the deal. I mean, this is the worst thing that could have happened to these people is, uh, that, you know, something happens that makes them believe it's because they bought that miracle. I, this is a terrible, terrible deception by Satan. God doesn't work this way, by the way. You can't buy miracles. They're not for sale. In fact, God doesn't operate that way. God is a gracious and loving God who feeds us and cares for us out of his kindness as a father. We Christians don't earn things from God as if somehow there's some kind of a merit system. I mean, this is... I mean, Roman Roman Catholicism of the medieval stripe had more, um, well, it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, the idea, you know, you want to spring a dead uh, relative out of purgatory? You know, when a coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory springs. I mean, we need to come up with some kind of a, 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 a Pringle jingle. <laughs> 
Now I'm not I'm not creative enough to come up with a, a Pringle jingle. Now I know some of you just in hearing this already, you know, you're sitting in front of your computers and verses are flying off of your, the tips of your fingers as you're typing. So if you have a Pringle jingle that you would like to share with the group, I would love to see them. You know, because remember, you know, that was the uh, the, the the jingle that uh, Tetzel used during the time of you know right before, on the eve of the Re- Reformation was. He was out there selling indulgences when a coin in the coffer clings a soul from purgatory springs. So here, you know, here, you know, when, you know, so when the last charge on your credit card is, you know, run, you know, you, you know, the, uh, the, the ink on your home is, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't write verse. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's just not my gift. Anyway, we need a Pringle jingle for those of you out there who are so inclined been for so many years, like for seven or eight years, every altar call I'd stand there and I'd have this great wife, I'd have the kids, but the house had never come. And it was just something God had placed on and I just took that step. And God was so good, we just live in a house that we just love in a great... So with each of these testimonies, it's it's building an anticipation. You know, God is in the house and he wants, mir- he wants to give you miracles and he's going to be paying close attention to how many zeros are after the one, you know, or the whatever the first number is and check you right. Five minutes from C3 Silverwater, how good is that? <laughs> Instead of a 45-minute drive, we've been commuting from the northern beaches for years and years serving out at Silverwater, so it was fantastic. Good job. Yeah, Dan, th- go ahead. I think partly we had we had these 10 years wandering. It was defaults all the time. It was hit and miss. The pieces of the puzzle weren't coming together. And in some ways, I think it was a shift in perspective. We were constantly looking on the northern beaches where we were living at the time. As you know, we passed through the Silverwater campus. Within six weeks of looking in that region, we had our house. It's a shift in perspective. And, you know, every time I pull out of that driveway and I look up at that beautiful home, I'm grateful. I see his promise. He's so Incredible. good. It's good. How many children you got? We got two and another on the way. So. It's so tragic that they think that they got this because they wrote a check to God. At number three. Is that it? Is that it? Ask me this time next year and I'll, uh, I'll answer that one. <laughs> Love you guys. Yeah, you're the best. Amen. Give them a big hand, would you? Really, uh, really sensational. Amen. All right, now I'm gonna we're gonna stop right there. No, uh, the next installment I'm gonna show you what he does here. Again, we're taking the Presence 2012 burrito. It, it's a big burrito. We're gonna cut it up into bite-sized pieces and kind of work our way through it. So you know, think of this as. You know, just a rancid, stinking, cheesy, moldy burrito of heresy. And, and uh, we'll work our way through it so we don't end up, you know, throwing up our, our dinner. Anyway, when, we, when, we, when I come back to this, we're going to look at how Phil Pringle misuses the story of Peter walking on the water as a means of priming the pump to get people to write large checks. Apparently, the, the President's 2012 conference... Well, that's their big money maker, you know. That's you know, and, and Phil Pringle is no better. In fact, much worse, and quite the, in the same stripe as Tetzel of uh, years past, who used to sell indulgences, telling people when the coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory springs. Can't wait to see what kind of jingles you guys come up with to <laughs> to name what it is that's happening here. But uh, folks, this isn't Christianity. This doesn't save people. It actually damns them. This is a mythology and a man-made religion that 
hijacks biblical terms and Christian ideas and pours out the biblical meaning and teaches falsehood, all as a means of making money. Shameful gain. And the result of this for a lot of people who end up in a church like this is that their souls are shipwrecked. They write the check and the miracle never happens. In fact, uh, somebody who used to attend C3 Church uh, when they were in college sent me a message on Facebook saying that this was them. They that that you know they had attended the presence conference when they were in college, and cleared their bank account out, and they had to beg for money from their own family, in order just to pay for the bus ride to get to to uh, to to you know to school on a daily basis, and their miracle never came, and that's you know that's how Satan is, isn't it? You know, because here's the deal. There's, you know, after the presence conference and the miracle offering service, there's going to be a handful of people who think that some major miracle happened because they purchased it. And they will be the ones who will get up there to prime the pump next year at the, at the presence 2013 conference. But then there's going to be a whole bunch of people. You know, it's like being in a raffle. You buy a raffle ticket and, you know, you're hoping that your number comes up and their number doesn't come up. And they think to themselves, well, my money's as good as the next guy's. And the percentage of money that I gave compared to the percentage of money that person gave as opposed to our, you know, our incomes, mine was greater. Why didn't God reward me with a miracle? Don't I need the miracle as much as the other guy? And yet nothing happened. Maybe it's because they didn't have enough faith. That's what they'll be told. You just didn't believe enough. Well, the reason why these things fail is because this isn't how God works. This isn't how he operates. Not at all. You can't buy miracles from God. Our God created us, and he loves us. And we who are bought by the blood of Christ, who've been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, understand that when we pray, we pray our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. See, daily when we pray to our Heavenly Father, as Jesus has taught us to pray, We pray for ourselves as well as all Christians that God would richly and abundantly provide for our needs by giving us daily bread and giving us what we need to pay our bills, to set aside money to save up so that we can retire, to pay for our kids' college and things like that. And when you clear your bank account as a means of somehow thinking of it as an investment by faith so that I can springboard and have a better thing. That's idolatry. That's idolatry of the worst kind. And that's a misappropriation and misuse of the daily bread that God gives us to sustain us you know, and provide for us on a daily basis so that we can have shelter and food and clothing. And these people are thieves. They are Thieves of the worst kind. And believe me, Christ will deal appropriately with them on the day when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Pray that they are brought to repentance of this thievery and blasphemy and are forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. Because if they go into eternity unrepentant charlatans like this, there is no hope for them. None whatsoever. They have blasphemed and stolen and beaten Christ's sheep all in the name of making money. That isn't Christianity. That's the work of the devil.
All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to contestant number two in our uh, 2012 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. I'll give you details on the other side. Just trust me, it's this is quite the zinger of a sermon. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two, our second contestant for the week. In our worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Now, I gotta tell you, this is a mandatory entry. You'll see what I mean in a second. Let's cue it up and let's do this thing. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Potential Church in Cooper City, Florida. By the way, Dan Sutherland of the hostile uh, takeover tactics of the purpose-driven church fame, the guy who wrote the book on transitioning, the guy whose lectures we reviewed here, where he talks about how to basically do a hostile takeover of a traditional church and make it purpose-driven. Yeah, Dan Sutherland used to be the pastor of this church. A long time ago, it was known as Flamingo Road Baptist Church. Uh Uh-huh. 
and now it's turned into potential. So it's gone from being a, a, a church to being a potential church. Now keep in mind, you know, potential church is only a church in potentia. That means they haven't really aspired yet to be a church. And during Christmas, you remember I gave, you know, we, we did a sermon review, which I dubbed the worst Christmas sermon ever preached in all of Christian history. That was delivered by Troy Grambling. So it was mandatory that we, well, review his Easter sermon here after his miserable, I mean, his utterly miserable attempt at a sermon during Christmas that we were, you know, that was the one where he talked about the manger. Um, yeah, yeah, are you going through the manger uh, time of your life? You know, maybe you're you're stuck in the manger and you need, you know, I mean, it's serious. It was just so bad. If you haven't heard it, you've got to go back and hear it. Yeah, because, you know, it's just, it's one of the worst examples of narcissistic eisegesis, otherwise known as narcissists, that I have ever, ever seen, heard, whatever. Yeah, the, the, unfortunately, I have to watch a lot of these sermons because we play them off their video channels. So while you're listening to it, I'm actually watching it. <clears throat> anyway, the name of Troy Gramling's entry into this year's um, worst Easter sermon of the year contest is entitled Pitology. Apparently, you don't want to fall into the pit, especially the pit of despair. That does come into play here, you'll see. Yeah, so anyway, without any further ado, here is Troy Gramling from the church that isn't quite a church yet that aspires to be a church, the church in potential, potential church, Cooper City, Florida. <clears throat> the uh, It's Pitology. Here we go. Oh, yeah, by the way, Potential Church is a multi-site with a multi-site location in Lima, Peru. They're spreading this disease across the... It is also important to note that this particular sermon was also the one where they were rep- you know, saying that people need to do the eye baptism, was you baptize yourself. They've even got a multi-site in the Bahamas. Kind of over here, oh, looking around, where is he? Man, we are glad you are here. I hope you're having a great, great Easter. Such an honor to get to celebrate with you. You know, really is our desire to, to, to love, to care, to partner. And, you know, one of the neat things that we're doing, we did it last year as well, is we're kind of doing a service on the hour. So we just did one in our student building at 8.30, then 9.30 here, and then... 10.30 over there and 11.30, 12.30, so on and so forth. But, uh, and, and, and the reason we do that is because, man, we just want to provide as much space as we can so that we can uh, all really celebrate Easter together. So if you're a guest, man, thank you so much for all the places you could choose 
to choose to celebrate Easter with us. And I hope that it'll be, you know, be encouraging as we remember just the power that's available to us because of the resurrection. You know, I was thinking this week as I was getting ready for Easter, when I was in the power because of the resurrection, that's just a little weird. College, I, uh, I played basketball and I, I wasn't by any means the tallest guy on the team, but I wasn't the shortest guy on the team either. I'm about 6'4". And so we had some guys on our team who were like around seven feet. And there was this certain guy who was about seven feet tall. He could never, he could never get a date. I mean, he just, you know, they don't tend not to make girls that tall. And then, well, he was ugly too. That might have had something to do with it, all right? But, but he could never get a date. So eventually, though, he found the girl, okay? And, uh, but she always had a friend with her. And he was like, Troy, can you, can you get the one girl away so I can spend some time with the other girl? And I'm like, well, I'll, I'll try. I'll see what I can do. And so I went to her and I said, hey, why don't you come with me? We'll go to the Just a reminder, this is an Easter sermon. Um, where's Jesus? What have you, what have you done with him? Is, uh, did you throw him into your pit? The student center and play ping pong. I was a wild college student, and, uh, and she said she would, and so we, we uh, went to the student center, and we were about a mile away. We decided to take a shortcut, and instead of going straight there, we went through a field. Now, what I didn't know is in that field, there was an, a manhole, an uncovered manhole, and to this day, I don't know how I did it, but I just stepped right into the middle of that manhole. I didn't hit my arm. I didn't hit my head. I just started falling for about 10 or 12 feet. Now, my whole life, I thought I was going to go to heaven, but it felt a lot like I was on my way to hell. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was scary. Now, it was about dusk, and she didn't know where I went. She was like, Troy, where are you? Where are you? I'm like, I'm down here. And she said, where? And eventually she found where I was and, and you know, she couldn't get me out by herself. I, I landed in this just like deep mud or, or at least that's what I like to think that it was. And <clears throat> there was these little pipes with water running in or at least that's what I want to call it. And uh, I, I couldn't get out. And so she had to go get some friends and they got a rope and they attached the rope and they, they you know, they pulled me out of there. And I don't know about you, I don't know if anybody here's ever actually, you know, stepped into a manhole. But you know what? There are times in our lives where you're just kind of walking along and then, ah! Yeah, he just walked off stage, you know, theatric impression here. Now we go to a video interlude. Apparently this is all part of the uh, sermon. Again, this is an Easter sermon. Maybe I can read for you the words on this particular video. There's a guy walking. He just fell into a pit, and it says, Human! Belonging to the species Homo sapiens are two consisting of human beings, the human race. And then the uh, Pitology book now just appeared. I wonder if it's related to Scientology. Uh-huh. Pitology, a noun. A natural or artificial hole or cavity in the ground. A concealed hole in the ground used as a trap, a pitfall. 
a miserable or depressing place or situation. Yeah, that's a terrible pit. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. So when life doesn't go your way, we fall inside of a pit. Oh, uh, yeah. See, if life doesn't go your way, you fall into a pit. That's just terrible, yeah. Wow. I'm so glad that Jesus came to save us from that. Sometimes it gives us warning. Most of the time, it doesn't. Yeah, this is all part of this video on pitology. Because pit happens. That's what the video says. Because pit happens. Oh, this is turning out to be a fine Easter sermon, don't you think? <laughs> and now Troy uh, Gramling, a potential church, not really a church yet, they just a church in potential. They used to be a real church at one time. Now they're just a potential church. Um, he's actually uh, on stage, and part of the stage flooring has been removed, and it looks like he's in a sand pit. You know, there's sand all the way around, so he's dug. He's gotten himself into a pit. Okay. This Easter, I, we're gonna kick off this series, but we wanna talk about we'll talk about pits, you know? Yeah, because that's so important to talk about it on Easter. <laughs> Who needs Jesus? You know, crucified, raised again from the grave. Who needs that? You need you. You need a pit. Because I really believe that there are some of us, and that's exactly... By the way, I forgot to warn you that this sermon gets dangerously close. I mean, so close to making a point. Dangerously close to actually preaching the gospel. So close. Oh, man. I just, I, I got to warn you that, you know, he even ends up in, like, what, Psalm 51, you know? And you're thinking, there, there's the gospel sitting right there. And you could see him getting warmer and more. We'll get there. Yeah, but you just want to warn you. You know, he gets so close. Where we are. I mean, we really don't know maybe how we got here or what we need to do. And we're trying to dig our way out, you know, hoping that somehow we'll find an escape. When in reality, I mean, we're just digging ourselves deeper into it. And what do you do? I mean, what does Easter have to do? What does Easter have to do with pits? Because yeah, that's a great question. I hope you answer it satisfactorily. They do happen in life. I mean, most yeah, pits happen. Yeah, boy, that's the pits when that happens. You know, most of us have experienced them, and many of us, even here at Easter, are in one. Oh no! There's people at potential church, not really a church yet, that are in a pit on Easter. <gasps> Maybe they should read Mark Batterson's book about being in a pit on a snowy day with a lion. Now that should make your pit experience really exciting. You want to pull out that outline that you got when you came in today. There's a passage of scripture in Psalms that I think we can identify with that kind of gives us the feeling yeah, yeah. of being stuck. There, yeah, there's a psalm that talks about being stuck. Yeah. In a pit. Look what it says in Psalm 69 verse 13. Yeah, that's, it's terrible. Feel this verse. Don't read it. Just feel it. You know. It says, but I keep praying to you, Lord, hoping that this time you will show me your favor and your unfailing love, oh God. Answer my prayer with your salvation. And then listen to what he says and see if you can identify. Rescue me from the mud and don't let me sink any deeper. 
Save me from those who hate me and pull me from the deep waters. Don't let the floods overwhelm me or the deep waters swallow me or the pit of death devour me. If you're here this Easter and you found yourself in a pit, don't you feel like that where it's just trying to devour you? Just trying to... What if you're not in a pit? You know, I just, you know, life's okay. You know, what if, you know, you're not in a pit. You don't feel like you're being devoured by anything. You know, just, you know, you know, steady as she goes. Kind of the same old, same old. What good is this Easter sermon then? You know, Overwhelm you. Just trying to keep you down. Just trying to knock you over. I mean, a pit is a horrible, horrible place. Yeah, yeah. These, these, these terrible allegories. They're terrible. Yeah. Yeah, if you're in one, I, I feel bad for you. To do life. None of us were created to do life in in a pit. Right. We were never, God never intended any of us to do life in a pit. Right. So it's my God-given right to to have a pitless life. So, Because that's what God intended for me. And yet, many times, that's where we find ourselves. What, what is it? What does a pit feel like? What does it feel like? Well, first of all, you might kind of dirty. I'm sure you know, maybe dusty, depending on you know, maybe muddy, depending on what you know, what how much water there is in that. Write this down. Uh, a pit is dark, isn't it? Yeah, that's what they are. They're dark. I mean, when I fell into that manhole, I mean, it was so dark I, I couldn't see anything. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what I needed to do to get out. I mean, pits don't have windows, do they? No, they don't. You know what's really interesting about pits, too, now that we think about what they don't have. They don't have windows. They also don't have portholes. I've noticed they don't have cannons. Um, they don't have sails. They don't have rigging. Um, they also don't have skateboards. You know, so we could sit here and just exhaust some of the ideas here. You know, pits. I mean, yeah, they, pits don't have windows, doors. Uh, they don't have sofas. Pits don't have, you know, um, you know, really cool things like, you know, golf clubs or courses and... You know, and, and they don't have a 19th hole. Either. Um, th this is terrible. Da we need to pass a law getting rid of pits. I mean, th th these are no good things. We just we need to pass a law and make it so nobody has to, you know, spend any of their God-given time on earth in one of these God-forsaken things. That's just terrible. Because there's no light in a pit, it changes your perspective. It affects your vision. Yeah, right. Do I need to put on glasses if I'm in a pit then because it affects my vision? See, if you're here and you're stuck in a pit, you can't dream about tomorrow because there's so much pain in today. No way! If I'm in a pit, I can't dream about tomorrow? Oh, these we need to pass a law. No way that we need to have people in pits. If they, have, if they end up in a pit without a window and they can't dream about tomorrow? <laughs> this is terrible. You can't think about what you're going to do one day because you're hurting so much on this day. There's no light in a pit. And because of that darkness, it robs us of our hope and it robs us of our vision, of our belief that tomorrow, that tomorrow something might happen. Pits are not only dark, but pits are also lonely, aren't they? I mean, you're just all by yourself. <laughs> and they're lonely too. I'm all by myself without a window and the ability to dream about tomorrow.
just terrible. Hey, when you fall in a pit, I think the reason that you feel so lonely is because you think nobody understands. N nobody knows how you feel. Nobody's been where you are. Nobody's had told to them what was told to you. Nobody so we need some pit empathy out. That's what we need this Easter. Somebody who's empathetic to the lonely people in the windowless dark pits with the inability to dream about tomorrow. We need some people out there who just show some empathy. Nobody's had them tree be treated the way you're treated. Pits feel lonely because once we're in it, we feel like we're there all by ourselves, that there's nobody to talk to, there's nobody to explain it to. There's nobody that's really going to understand. Pits are dark, pits are lonely, and then, well, we all know pits are underground. They're not just physically underground. <laughs> They're underground. Oh, man. Uh, by the way, folks, Psalm 69 has nothing to do with what he's, he's trying to teach here. Oh, this is just unbelievably bad. I mean, I serious. They're emotionally underground. Yeah, that emotional undergroundism, that's just bad stuff. When you're in a pit, you feel like the whole world is on your back. When you're in a pit, you feel like you're under while everybody else is over. Yeah, because you're underground, you know. That would mean that everyone else is over. And they're not lonely either, and they got windows up there, and... You have no windows in your pit. You feel like you're stuck underground while everybody else is just going on with their life. They're off to college. They're buying a new home. They just entered into a new relationship. They just well, <laughs> yeah, Apparently, you spend some long days and weeks and months and years in those pit. You know, you might want to get yourself like a pit protection plan, you know, or a pit extrication removal strategy or something, you know. I mean, while everyone else is going to college and you're stuck in a pit, I mean, somebody throw you a rope, please. Started a new job. They began a new company. And while all that's going on, you're down here. You're under. And you're like, come on, don't you see me? <laughs> oh, man. Don't you care? Won't you help me out? When you're in a pit, you, you feel like you're under. Now, I wrote in my journal that... <laughs> You're going to read from your journal now. When we're in a pit, we feel like we're under the circumstances, underqualified, undervalued, underemployed, underrated, the underdog, an underachiever, and over overlooked. Pits are dark, pits are lonely, pits are under. And then when you're in a pit, you always feel stuck, like there's no escape, like there's no way out. You, you ever gotten stuck in, in mud? so deep that the only way to get out was to leave your shoes that the more you moved the deeper you got when i was growing up i uh, we lived out on a gravel road and in the winter time often my mom would be driving and the car would just sink and the more she would spin her wheels the deeper the car would go that's that's the way pits feel the more you try to be happy the sadder you feel the more you try to figure it out the more confused you are the more <laughs> I can't relate to any of this. The more you try to get into control, the more out of control you are. Pits are those places where we're not sure how we got in, and we sure don't know how to get out. No matter how hard we try and no matter what we do, they're dark, they're lonely, they're always under, they're never over. And they're places 
where we feel where we feel stuck as if there's no way out well how does it happen you know I mean how do you end up in a pit and there are several re ways the scripture talks about first of all some of us today are in a pit because well we we got pushed into it really the Bible talks about those pushed into a pit now I can think of somebody literally um, put into a pit that would be Joseph but, but I mean I mean, the way that just rolled off his tongue. You know, the Bible talks about at least three different ways in which you can end up in a pit. Really? I had no idea that the Bible taught this pit-ology. It's almost like somebody snuck up behind us yeah, and they just kind yeah. of pushed us in. Oh, yeah, the Bible's full of that. Where? Or they picked us up and they just threw us into the pit. Some of us are here and we're in a pit at no fault of our own. It's not something we did, it's something someone or something did to us. Yes, you've been pit-victimized, or pit-vimized. <laughs> oh, man. There's an example in the Old Testament, a young man by the name of Joseph. Oh, yeah, saw this coming. Okay, yes. He was literally put in a pit, and then they sold him into slavery in Egypt. He was in a big family. He was the youngest of 12, and he was daddy's favorite. Good old Joseph. We love you, Joey. I notice he's not actually reading a biblical text here. Well, his brothers... Not that it would help. ...didn't like him very much as a result. And not only was he daddy's favorite, daddy got him a designer coat. It was made of many colors, the Bible says. And one day his brothers decided to get even. And so they lured Joseph out into the field away from the watching eye of daddy. Look what it says in Genesis 37. It says, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off his robe, that designer coat that his dad had got him. And they took him and they did what? They threw him in the pit. Joseph was just thrown into the pit. It wasn't something he did. It wasn't something that, no, no, it happened to him. Yeah, and it was a literal, for real pit. It was a cistern. This was a bona fide, for real pit. Not an allegorical, psychological pit that apparently you get into. And you sit there and you're all alone and lonely while everyone else is going to college. You know, you get thrown into the pit by sudden tragedy. Oh, okay. And somebody crosses the yellow line and they run head into somebody that you love and in the matter of minutes, that person's taken from you. Yeah, that would be called mourning and or depression. It's not anything you did. You didn't cause it to happen. You just got the phone call and now you... And that has nothing to do with the story of Joseph. You find yourself in a pit every day you miss them more than you did the day before you 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 want to somehow move on but feel guilty that you desire to do that it's like tragedy picked you up and just threw you into the pit oh man on good friday stephanie my wife she got a call from her sister that her mom was out in the garden she fell and she broke her hip She's about 62, and she had to have an emergency hip replacement surgery, and her blood pressure fell way down to like 70 over 30, and so they couldn't, or they took her off all of the pain medicine. So she just had this surgery, and she couldn't have any medicine, and tragedy has a way of just picking you up and manhandling you into the pit. I, I put in your outline that crime can do that.
You know when somebody breaks into your car? or break- Crime can throw you into a pit. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It would be a crime if somebody threw you into a pit. That would be bad. You might be able to, like, prosecute. Breaks into your house. I mean, you might not be there. You may have never been in danger. But they took something from you much more important than the stuff that they stole. They took your security, didn't they? I mean, you felt in control. I mean, you, you felt secure. And now that's all been taken. And so you're making sure that every door is locked and every security system is set. And you're always on the phone and you're always calling and you're driving your family and friends crazy. Yeah, because you're in a pit, apparently. Who knew? But it's not because you want to. It's just because you're so afraid. It's just because somebody broke into your car or into your house and it's like they threw you into a pit. Illness can do that. Doctor calls and says, Yeah, illness can throw you into a pit too. By the way, it can also put you in the hospital, but apparently they're not the same thing. Just a reminder this is an Easter sermon. Oh, man. We've seen something, and all of a sudden you feel like you're in a pit, betrayal. You walk down an aisle and say, I do, but they don't. You go into business with that. Uh, crime, illness, and betrayal. These can all throw you into a pit. Friend, you go all in. You put everything you got, and they walk away. Notice again, common theme here in Seeker Driven Churches. You are an innocent victim. You are walking along, minding your own business, when all of a sudden, crime, betrayal, illness, and other sinister forces manhandled you and threw you into a pit. See, you're just basically a good person. But then you've been pitied. No, that doesn't sound right. You've been pitted. There you go. Yes. It's very painful. You don't want to be in a pit. Pits are bad. So you need to be on the lookout for crime, betrayal, and other nefarious forces that desire to throw you into a pit. And now you're in a financial pit. You gave it everything you got. Now we got a money pit. Oh, man. You got nothing left. You don't know how to get out, but you didn't put yourself there. Sometimes we get thrown into a pit, abuse, sexual or physical, whether you're an adult or... So the abuse thing can throw you into a pit, too. Child. Sometimes we get pushed into a pit, but sometimes we slide into a pit. Ah, so there's the push into the pit, and then you've got the sliding. Ah, so you need to beware of sliding into a pit. It's very, very relevant stuff here, folks. You know, so you need to be on the lookout for crime, betrayal, and other nefarious forces that would push you into the pit. But now you need to also beware of sliding into a pit. Because that's another way in which you can end up under rather than over. In a, in a dark place without a window. And no ability to dream about tomorrow. You see, there's forces out there that would throw you into the pit. But you are, if you're not wary, if you're not careful you might find yourself sliding into the Because the Bible, all over the place, warns you about sliding into pits or being thrown into them and things like that. 
I don't know if you've ever driven on ice or snow. It's a horrible feeling to slide, to lose control of your car. I remember when I was in high school, our basketball team won a tournament. And so one of the girls' moms threw a party. The only problem is, is that we had been out of school for two days because of snow and ice, and they lived on a hill. And I remember I had a pickup truck, a rear-end drive, and that's not good on snow. And, and I got right to the bottom of the hill where I was about to go up the hill. And it was just covered in ice, and my heart started to beat, you know. But I was 16. At 16, you know everything. And, and so I hit the accelerator, and I was doing really good until about three-fourths of the way up the hill. And all of a sudden, my wheels started to spin. And then I was no longer making forward progress. I started sliding backwards towards this giant ditch, scared me to death. So I slammed on the brakes, and that only made me slide faster towards the ditch. It's a horrible feeling. I knew where I was going, but there was nothing I could do to stop myself. I ended up in the ditch. Had to call so it's like that part from, like, you know, Return of the Jedi, you know, in the Sarlacc pit. You know, you're, you're, in the, you're already in the pit, but it got, you, you could slide right into the Sarlacc's mouth, and then be digested over a thousand-year period. That very painful way to go, by the way. Oh, my dad had to call the wrecker. Everybody drove by and they laughed at me. Some of us are here and we're in the ditch because just little by little, we just kind of slid into the ditch. Again, there's example in Scripture. Yes, there's, an, there's a famous example in Scripture about somebody sliding into a pit. Little by little, I... Not sure what that example is. Nothing's coming to mind. But it's in their Bible somewhere. There's know. a religious leader by the name of Elijah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Elijah was, he slid into a pit? Really? And Elijah found himself one day in a battle royal against the prophets of Baal. Yeah. Ahab was the king. He was wicked, the scripture says. His yeah. wife was even worse. Her name was Jezebel. Yeah. They were, or Ahab was there to watch this whole thing go down. Basically what they did is they built this altar of wood and they said, whichever God can send the fire is the real God. Is it Baal or is it Jehovah? Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you guys can go first. And so they began to pray that their God would send fire and they prayed and they prayed and nothing happened. They cut themselves to try to get their attention. Of now, just a quick question. Where ex exactly... In the prophets of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel is the section where Elijah slides into a pit. <laughs> I mean, this is just unbelievable. Hey, hang on a second here. First Kings, I think it's First Kings 18, isn't it? Okay, yeah, it is. Hang on a second here. Um... First Kings chapter 18, verse 17. So when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? He answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 450 foreign prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel. Okay, we got that part. Um, okay, and so Elijah came near all the people. He says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. That would be if Yahweh is God. But if Baal is 
Then follow him, and the people did not answer him a word. So then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, am only am left of a prophet of the Lord, that would be Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire in it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, I will call upon the name of the of Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he's God. Okay, no problem. All right, so <clears throat> I just want to get up and make sure I got the, uh, This is kind of a strange Easter text for sure. So um, they took the bull that was given to them. They prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. So they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon, Elijah mocked them. Uh-huh. Gotta love this. Cry louder, for he is a god. Either he's musing or he is relieving himself. The he is relieving himself is a reference, by the way, to bathroom <clears throat> particulars. Um, number two, if you're wondering. So, or is he on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened? So they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And at mid and as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. All the people came near to him. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name, and with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh, and he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. He put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four jars with water, poured on the burnt offering and on the wood, and he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time, they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Three times, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And they seized them. Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Okay. The great story so far. I don't see anything about Elijah sliding into a pit here, do you? So Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. 
he bowed himself down on the earth, put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now and look toward the sea. He went up and looked and said, There's nothing. He said, All right, go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black, the clouds and the wind were there, and, they, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Okay, all right, so far so good. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. That would be all that Yahweh had done. And now, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Yeah, that's what the, the Torah calls for. So then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Okay, I don't see anything here about him falling and sliding into a pit. Hang on. All right. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Rise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. This would be Mount Sinai, right? Great story. So he came to a cave, lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Hmm. Wow. You could almost make the argument that Elijah here is seriously concerned that true belief in the one true God would be extinguished off the face of the earth. He really thinks he's the last one alive who believes in Yahweh, right? For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am left only, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, 
return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arise, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Mehalah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Notice how God is merciful here. Elijah's had enough. He's had enough. And he says, God, take my life. And you know what God does? Set your affairs in order. Here's your successor. Go anoint this king. And by the way, you're not the only one. There are 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. And so Elijah then goes and does all this. And shortly thereafter, he is taken away in a chariot of fire into heaven. He doesn't die a natural death. Great story. I... I don't see anything in here about sliding into a pit. Um, okay, so let's find out what Troy Grambling is going to do with this. They're gone, and still there was no fire. I love it because Elijah starts making fun of him. He says, well, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe you need to say it a little bit louder. Eventually they give up. Elijah says, you know, before I pray to Jehovah, I want you to dig a trench around that wood, and I want you to pour enough water on the wood that it fills up the trench. That's what they did, and Elijah prayed. And the Bible says that God sent fire that was so hot that it consumed the wood, and it licked up all the water in the trench. Now, Elijah was pretty pumped up about this because he just knew that when word got back to the palace, when Ahab got back to the palace and told his wife what had happened, that Jezebel was going to fall down and worship Jehovah, worship, worship God. Uh, that's not in the text. So Ahab gets in his chariot, kind of the Mercedes of his day. And here's what the scripture says. It's awesome. It says that Elijah kind of pulled up his robe and he outran the chariot to the palace. If you're old as me, it's kind of like the $6 million man. It's awesome. Or that kind of sounded like Halloween, didn't it? I'm not sure, but it was awesome. Yeah, go with a second. Some awesome story. Elijah gets there, but it doesn't work out like he thinks. Really? Where did it say that he thought that Jezebel would just fall to her knees in repentance? I don't, I don't recall that passage. I just read the whole thing. Instead of Jezebel falling down and worshiping God, she looks at Elijah and she says, by this time tomorrow... You're going to be dead. I want your head on a platter. And Elijah is... Actually, that would be John the Baptist. Yeah, just mixing our, our prophetic metaphors here. Discouraged. I mean, he's put out all this energy and what he thought would happen didn't happen. He what? He's discouraged? He just kind of wanders around sad. And look what the Bible says in... He, <laughs> Elijah wanders around sad? Where did you read that? First Kings 19. Then he went alone. Often when you slide into a pit, the enemy attacks you when you're alone. <laughs> 
He went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day, and he sat down under a solitary broom tree. You know why I think that's in the scripture? It's kind of like Elijah said, you know what? I went into the wilderness and I couldn't even find a tree. Couldn't even find any shade. And it says he sat down underneath this tree and he asked God to take his life. He said, God, just kill me. I'm tired of this. I've had enough. Take my life for I'm no better off than my ancestors who already died. We slide into a pit like Elijah. The, the, yeah, he didn't slide into no pit. Uh, discouragement can often slide us into a pit. Elijah went from being discouraged to being depressed. Right, right, just discouraged. Really? He, so he was suffering from full-blown clinical depression. Who knew? That things didn't work out the way that he thought. Maybe that's you. Something's happened and it didn't go the way you thought it would go. You didn't, it didn't happen the way you thought it would happen. And you were a little bit discouraged about it. But now you've got one foot in the pit. You're not just discouraged. You're depressed. It took everything you had just to get here today. It takes everything you have every day just to get out of bed. You know you ought to, but you don't want to. And you're not even sure how you got there. Yeah, you just slid right in there just like Elijah did apparently, you know. I mean, yeah, you were discouraged, but when did discouragement turn to depression? When did it take so much energy just to take a step? And you're in the pit. And everybody else goes on with their life. Everybody else is over while you're under. Yeah, going to college and everything while you're stuck, you know. Sometimes we slide into the pit of discouragement. Sometimes we slide into the pit because of overwhelming debt. Nobody ever slide into the pit because of overwhelming debt. Oh no. Intends on owing Visa $20,000, do they? Just happens. Little by little. So if I don't have any credit card debt, then I don't need this sermon, do I? Have you ever gotten your credit card bill, opened it up, looked at it, and said, Who spent all this money? And then you start looking at it and you're like, Oh, I did. No, I bought this and I bought, right? It just kind of adds up. And you've just kind of slid into this financial pit and you're like, I owe more than I make. How am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to go to college? How am I going to get the kids to college? I mean, well, you got to get out of the pit first if you want to go to college because you already said that if you're in the pit, then other people are going to college and you can't because there's no windows and you can't dream about tomorrow. You're just, you're just caught. You don't know how to get out. You don't know what to do. Sometimes, sometimes financial debt will cause us to slide in the pit. Sometimes it's attraction. Right? <laughs> Uh-oh. There's a pit of attraction. So is that like a tractor beam into the pit? <whistles> All right. Really? It's a little flirting to pass time, but that flirting turns into something you never thought you'd do, something you can't believe that you did. And you just kind of slid into the, you just kind of slid into the pit and, and you're alone. You're, nobody understands. You're not a bad person. You didn't intend on. You're not a bad person. Ah, uh, yeah, see, there is the problem. The end. Well, you are. Man, bad theology, bad metaphor, ridiculously banal sermon. By the way, this is an Easter sermon. Just 
Compare this to the sermons we played last week. Doing that, I mean, you really do love your wife. You're, you're, you're not evil. It's just somehow... It, it, you're not evil. Just somehow you ended up committing adultery. Right, yeah. Because, you know, there's lots of good people out there that, well, commit adultery. You're not an evil person. You're just a, you're a good person who's also an adulterer. Happened, and once you got going in that direction, you 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 didn't know how to stop it. Sometimes attraction can just slide us into the pit, and the problem with sliding into the pit is often that last little push is guilt. Right? Yeah. Then when you feel bad about what you've done, that's the thing that really throws you into the pit. You know what's really sad about all of this? I mean, that some of the examples he's giving, they will send you to a literal pit, the fiery furnace, a.k.a. the lake of fire, the pit of hell. Because the bad thing about sliding into the pit is that you know that you're there or that you wouldn't be there if you would have just stopped. You wouldn't be in the pit if you just wouldn't have bought all that stuff. And you don't even know what you're spending on. And you're embarrassed to tell anybody that you can't make your mortgage. You know you wouldn't be in the pit if you just wouldn't have went on that business trip. If you just wouldn't have made that one extra phone call that set up the appointment that led. And so that guilt makes you feel all alone, doesn't it? There's nobody you can talk to. There's nobody that's going to understand. There sure isn't any compassion. Sometimes we slide into the pit because we just feel guilty or addiction. Nobody ever goes to that website the first time thinking that they won't be able to stop. Nobody ever takes that pill the first time thinking that they won't be able to lay it down. And again, you're alone, aren't you? Because what would people think if they knew that every night when everybody else goes to bed, your eyes are glued to something that you know, you know is creating destruction, but you can't walk away from it. You know, we did a series on Easter several years ago called I've Screwed Up.com. Okay, notice here, i got to point this out, that we've moved from the pushed in, that when you slide in, well, there is some level of culpability. If you've slid into a pit, you, there may be some, well, some things that you've done to contribute to your pitiful condition. Pun intended. The confessional, online confessional. And what was interesting about that series is often when you talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, they'll rationalize their screw-ups. They'll try to explain it away. Like, I, I don't think it's wrong. It may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. But you know what? There was none of that on this website. There was nobody trying to convince everybody that what they were doing wasn't wrong. You know what was on that website? Were people who said, I started, and I don't know how to stop. I started something at work, and I don't know how to put it down. I took something and I Do you think the cross might have something to do with this? Just asking the question here because, again, this is an Easter sermon. You think Christ's crucifixion, bloody sacrifice for our sins on the cross to redeem us, uh-huh, from sin, death, the devil, that it might have something to do with how to get us out of this sinful predicament, the consequences of our sin. I don't know how to lay it to the side. 
Sometimes it is addiction that just causes us to slide into the pit. Sometimes we're pushed into the pit. Sometimes we slide into the pit. And lastly, sometimes we dig our own pit, don't we? And then- so the, you take the shovel out of your hand. You don't, you don't want to be digging your own pit, but apparently this happens too, you know, because it's all part of pitology, you know. Major theme apparently in the Bible. New Testament, there's a story in Matthew of unforgiveness. You know, I, I believe that unforgiveness is the shovel that so many people use to dig their pit. Yeah, this will be Matthew 18. Yeah, there's a lot going on there talking about unforgiveness. It's hard to forgive when you've been hurt. I mean, when people have done things, they shouldn't have done it. There's no doubt about it. It was wrong. They had no right to do that to you. And they did it over and over and over again. And you start feeding your mind about what you're going to do the next time you see them and what you wished you would have done the last time you saw them. And one shovel at a time, you're digging yourself a pit. And then you end up all alone in your self-pity. And you're like, this is not fair. I'm not the one who did it. It was done to me. So the pit apparently is your own personal psychological um, prison? I, you know, I don't know. Unforgiveness will dig a pit that you don't know how to get out of. Anger, uncontrollable anger. Those of you who struggle with anger have probably never had anybody tell you you struggle with it because they're afraid to. Because they know if they do, you'll explode. And when you explode, shrapnel goes everywhere. Your life looks like this. You blow up and then you ask for forgiveness. And then- Do you think Troy Gramling has a license to practice psychology and do group therapy? You know, just asking, you know. Because this ain't Christian doctrine or biblical teaching or really a biblical sermon. Again, this is another group therapy attempt. Do you think he's qualified to do that? And you blow up and then you ask for forgiveness. Then you blow up and you ask for forgiveness. And you think because you ask for forgiveness that everything's okay. But if you were to pull up the shirt of your family and friends, you would see cuts and bruises from the shrapnel of your blow-ups. And one day, you're going to find yourself in a pit and you're going to wonder where in the world your family and your friends went. And it's because one, one blow-up at a time... You angrily dug your own pit. You know, I gotta challenge this. I mean, seriously, if you got if you got anger issues and you're constantly blowing up at people, my my theory is is that that's not you digging your own pit. That's your family members rallying around and then shoving you into the pit, and then well, taking the shovel out and closing the pit up. Yeah, you, you know, you, that that would be my guess. Jealousy. We'll dig a pit where you and I are critical of somebody because they have something we don't. Just, this is interesting little test for you. Go to the mall, go to the airport, go to your kid's ball game, and just listen to how many people criticize other people because they have something that they don't have. Pride. All of those things cause us to dig our own pit. Sometimes we get thrown into the pit. Sometimes we slide into the pit. Sometimes we dig our own pit. Well, how do you get out of it? <laughs> yeah, how? Please. How do you escape this thing? When does it all end? Right, you know, because at this point, the word pit, like, has no meaning whatsoever. Come on, Troy, don't you have some good news? It's Easter, for goodness sakes. Yeah, can you tell me something about Jesus? Let's pit talk, you're gallowing me. Well, uh, definition for resurrection. Oh, no. (laughs) The definition for resurrection? That would be a body... 
coming back to life. Resurrection. Why, why, why am I afraid of what he's going to say now? All right, here we go. I'm going to press the play button. Are you ready? Means the act of rising from the dead. Yeah. To be set free, to escape. And just as Jesus escaped the pit of death, you and I can escape the pit of despair. I <laughs> Really? Just as Jesus escaped the pit of death, we can escape the pit of despair. Have you not seen The Prince's Bride? Where am I? The pit of despair. Don't even think. <coughs> don't even think about trying to escape. The chains are far too thick. And don't dream of being rescued either. The only way in is secret. Only the Prince of the Count and I know how to get in and out. Then I'm here till I die? Till I kill you. Yeah, so, I mean, don't even think about getting out of the pit of despair. Oh, no, really? <laughs> I gotta back it up just a couple of seconds because this is silly. It's Easter, for goodness sakes. Let's pit talk. You're gallowing me. Well, uh, definition for resurrection means the act of rising from the dead, to be set free, to escape. And just as Jesus escaped the pit of death, you and I can escape the pit of despair. I love what the scripture says in Psalm 40. I w um, <laughs> no. waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and, it tur and he turned to me, and he heard my cry, and he lifted me up out of the pit... It's like he got a computer. It's like he went to BibleGateway.com and he typed into the search bar, pit, looking Old Testament and New Testament. Oh, man. You know what? That reminds me. I mean, it, you know what? I think it's time for a gratuitous musical interlude. Um, yeah, it, those of you familiar with the band U2 are also familiar with the fact that, uh, well, they wrote a song somewhat based on... Uh, <clears throat> Psalm 40 from from the war album. Here, here's you two. Just go with it. Sing it if you know it. I waited patiently for the Lord. He climbed and heard my cry. I will sing, sing a new song. I will sing, sing a new song. to sing this song. If you got a big lighter, you know, you want a lighter right now and kind of wave it in the air. prefer to play the rest of that song but yeah we got we got a bad sermon to get through 
Oh, man. Of despair, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on the solid ground, and he steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing. If you want to get out of the pit, you got to do three things. The first thing you have to do... <laughs> if you want to get out of the pit, you got to do three things. Oh, wow. It's a pit rescue plan. Somehow secretly revealed within the bowels of the Bible itself is it's the three-point pit rescue plan. Please share. Dude, as you have to cry out, King David was in a pit. Yeah, you got to cry out. How long to sing this song? Uh, yeah, you, see, that's the first thing you got to do. It's just like King David in Psalm 40 cried out. See, that's the first thing you got to do. Help. I'm in a pit. It's like that old commercial. Help, I've fallen and I can't get up. You need to cry out. You need to let people know, hey, I'm in a pit. And and then that's the first step for your pit extrication rescue plan. That's It's a three-point rescue plan revealed in the Bible. He was the king of God's people. He blew it big time. He screwed up in a big way. He committed adultery. He lied about it. And then he murdered to try to cover it up. And look at what he says in Psalm 51, verse... Wait a second. Was David in a pit? I don't recall any pitted, pittedness going on with King David. But Psalm 51. Now, this is where he gets dangerously close to the uh, to the biblical gospel. Watch what he does here. This is one and two. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the strain or the stain of my sins. If you and I want to get out of our pit, we've got to come to our point in our life where we can be authentic enough with God to be honest with Him. Getting close. We're getting warmer. To just cry out to Him, whether it be from our lips or from our eyes. Just to say, God, listen, I don't understand why this happened. I don't understand why my spouse was taken from me. I don't understand why my kid has this disease. God, I don't even know if I believe this stuff anymore. Yeah, now we're getting uh, getting colder. Yeah, remember that game you, you know, you'd hide something in the living room and then you'd, your kids are small and you'd say, "Can you find the thing I hid?" You know, it was a toy or something. And you know, if if they got close, you go, "You're getting warmer, getting warmer." Oh, you're hot, you're burning up. And as they get farther away, you, "Oh no, yes, oh it's getting cold in here. Whoo, it's breezy. Whoo, it's freezing. I need a jacket. Somebody get me a snow parka. You know, things like that." Yeah, at this point, no, we're getting colder. He he was getting warmer there for a second. Yeah, I mean, we're getting dangerously close to the biblical gospel, and now we're getting colder and colder and colder. Jeremiah is an old prophet that went to God one time, and he said, you know what, God, I signed up for this, but you tricked me. I didn't know that this is what was going to happen. I didn't know that this is the way this was going to take place. When you and I cry out, we empty out, which allows God to fill up. <laughs> you know, it makes me wonder if uh, there needs to be some kind of a, you know, one of those you know, disclaimers. And I, I play, you know, when I play a good sermon, don't try this at home. <laughs> you got to cry out so that God can fill up. Oh, no. And David cries out and he asks God, he says, God, restore the joy of my salvation. God's big enough to handle anything you're feeling. But until you're honest enough to share it with him, you'll never get out of the pit.
you'll notice in Psalm 51, that was a full-blown confession of his sin. Hang on a second here. I oh, This is miserable. <laughs> oh, man. Talk about talk about a sequel. I mean, the his Christmas sermon was the worst one ever preached in all of Christian history. <laughs> Whoo, boy, this Easter sermon's getting close. Um, <laughs> okay, Psalm fifty-one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Watch this, verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Apparently he was born in a pit. Behold, you delight in truth, and in the inward uh, in the inward being, you teach me wisdom in the secret place. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Boy, Troy's getting really, really close here to preaching the biblical gospel, because you could preach it from this text clearly, lucidly, in a way that would bring sinners to repentance, sorrow, and contrition for the sins that they've committed against God, and then restore them and build them up and give them hope, pointing out to the fact that our God is merciful. He forgives sins. He pardons adulterers and murderers. And this story and this psalm give us hope that God can forgive a sinner even as wretched as me, even as wretched as you. I mean, it's right here. We continue. You're just playing a game. You're just going through the motions. You got to cry out, but then you have to confess. Look. Okay. Okay. We're getting warmer again. What he does in verses three and four, he says, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you and you alone. Have I sinned? We're getting warmer. We got to confess. You know what the word confess means? It means to agree with God. That's pretty close. The Greek word homologeo means to say the same thing. Confession is when you and I agree with God about our sin. Right. Oh, oh boy, we're getting really hot here. We say, you know what, God, I agree with you. I missed the mark. Yeah, yeah. I blew it. I screwed up. Right. We're getting really Several hot. Years ago, when I was. Uh, oh, why do I feel like we're getting cold again? Still in Arkansas. One morning, I just woke up with anxiety. I had never had a panic attack, and one morning, I just woke up, just anxious. I felt it in my stomach. I felt it in my chest. Man, I thought I was dying. I thought I was going crazy. I talked to my friends, talked to other pastors, talked to, went to a counselor. A week turned into a month. A month turned into another month. And one night when I was wrestling with it, I just felt like God nudged my heart. And he said, you know what, Troy? You need to agree with me about some stuff. And so I pulled out a pencil and a paper and I said, you know what, God? I just want to ask you to bring anything to my memory that you and I haven't dealt with. 
Uh, what? Anything that I haven't agreed with you about, and I just started writing down. The direct revelation here. You know, if you want to know how you've sinned, you open up the Bible. The list got a lot longer than I thought it was going to be when I sat down. Well, well, yeah, I could see why. And then I remembered, as I was looking at all of those things, yeah. that in 1 John 1, 9, if we... Listen, okay, we're getting close. 1 John 1, 9? Oh, we're getting really, really, really hot here. Agree with him about our sin. If we confess our sin, yeah, yeah. he is faithful and just to forgive yes. and to cleanse. Not only does he forgive our sin, but I tore up that paper and I threw it away. Okay, now that is a full-blown gospel nugget. So we have to play our gospel nugget soundbite. Yeah, now I wasn't able to track how fast that gospel was moving, but you get the idea here. That was a fast-moving gospel nugget. Now let's see where he goes. Because God cleanses. He separates us from our sin. He takes us as far as the east is from the west. He gives us a fresh start. He gives us a new beginning. Mm, fresh start, new beginning. Well, that means that this fresh start, new beginning depends on you. So what he just gave you with the right hand, he just took away with the left. If you want to get out of the pit, you got to agree with God about the screw-ups in your life. But confession is not just agreeing with God about... Uh-oh. ...about the sin in your life. Confession is agreeing with God about what he says about you. And oh, no. We're getting farther and farther away from the gospel now. Here comes the Joel Osteen positive confession about how wonderful you are litany via Troy Grambling, Easter Sunday, potential church. In your life, did you know that God says in Ephesians that you're his masterpiece? That before time, he created you to do good works? That you are a painting in the art gallery, in God's art gallery? You are. Did you know that Psalm says that you were knit together in your mother's womb, that you are marvelously and wonderfully made? Did you know that the scripture says God has a plan for you? And it's not a plan to fail, it's a plan to succeed. No, really? Jeremiah 29, 11? That's out of context. See, confession, well, it's not just, well, confessing the negative things. No, you got to confess all the great things about you, too. Uh. See, if you are going to get out of the pit, you've got to agree with God. You've got to confess what God says about you. In other words, you may be like, man, I feel alone. I feel like a failure. I feel like I've blown it. I feel discouraged. I feel defeated. I feel like I'm never going to get out of this, like I'm never going to make a difference. But Yeah, I feel like this sermon's going to send people to hell. But, God, I agree with you that you have created me to do good works. God, I agree with you. I I am your masterpiece. Oh, no, 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 no. I am wonderfully and masterfully made. God, I agree with you. I may feel like I'm never going to succeed, but you created me not to fail, to succeed. You <laughs> Oh, man. You created me not to live under, but over. It's confession. And if we're going to get... Yeah, that's... <laughs> You're going to look long and hard. <laughs> oh, man. Out of the pit, we've got to be willing to confess. We've got to be willing to cry out. And then lastly... Yeah, we've got to authentically confess how great we are. <laughs> oh. We have to consent 
So you need a consent form, too. So you got to cry out, confess how great you are, and then consent to something. David said in verses 16 and 17, he said, You know what, God? It's not a, it's not a sacrifice you're after. I, I readily give it. I freely give it. It's not something religious that you want me to do. You're after a broken and contrite heart. In other words, God wants me to consent. What does it mean to consent? So how does the broken and contrite heart thing jive? How do you square that with, man, am I great? I'm God's masterpiece. I I can't fail. I'm going to succeed. <laughs> this doesn't sound like a broken and contrite anything to me. Or a broken and a broken confessor, because they ain't working. It means to be obedient. It means that if God nudges your heart to send an email, you send an email. If yeah, you got to consent to be obedient. We well, got the Ten Commandments. Those are in writing. How you doing on those? If God nudges your heart to make a phone call, you make a phone call. If God nudges your heart to give somebody a handshake, you give them a handshake. If God yeah, those nudges, you know, to do those kind of things, are so much easier than the Ten Commandments. See, then you're obeying. Nudges your heart to help the guy on the side of the road with a few bucks. You reach into your pocket and you give him some resources, no matter how much you have in your pocket. It means to consent. It means to trust. It means to surrender. If you're going to get out of the pit, if I'm going to get out of the pit, I've got to cry out. I've got to confess. And then I've got to consent. Just daily walking with Christ, whether it be big or whether it be small. I'm just doing what he asked me to do. Just a little bit at a time. Just being obedient. Whatever he says, I do. Wherever he asks me to go, I go. Yeah, you're obedient. Right. Yeah, that's, you don't need a crucified and risen Savior if you're obedient. Because I think... I put in your outline that if you really want to get out of the pit, Easter is the way out. <laughs> okay, please share. I mean, think about that for just a moment. Cue sappy music. If you're here this Easter. <laughs> and, you know, to make the point, well, he's got the sappy music playing. He's now stepping into the pit himself. He's making the trek down into the bottom of the pit to help make his point. And all this stuff we've been talking about has been a description of your life. If somehow you found yourself in a place that you never thought you would be and you don't know how to get out, Easter. Easter really is the way out. Okay. I mean, you, you can't do it yourself, can you? Apparently not. Hey, if you're going to get out of the pit, you need somebody that's stronger than you. Look at what the scripture says in... <laughs> I got to tell you what I'm watching. Okay. <laughs> we're getting... We're, not only is it sappy music at this point, we're, we're, we're actually... You can see what's happening. He's putting some kind of a safety... <laughs> harness on he's putting a belt around himself because he's about ready to make a dramatic theatrical um escape from the pit you know and he could just see this coming i mean oh man oh no 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 in john chapter 11 verse 25 would you read that with me out loud uh, don't pay attention to me while i put the safety harness on jesus told her i am all right, let's do it again. Let's read it out loud together. He hasn't quite got the belt on yet. You and me. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection. 
Jesus says it begins with me. <laughs> if you want to get out of the tomb, it begins with me. You don't have the strength. You don't have the wisdom. You don't have the knowledge. You can't do it yourself. If you want to get... So apparently the pit is now a tomb. Okay. The only way for you and I to get out of the pit, uh, out of the pit is to link up with him. This little carabiner, right? As <laughs> oh, this is so cheesy. Oh, man. <laughs> so the only way to get out of the pit is to link up with Jesus. That we, we click it onto ourselves. Yeah. And then the hard part is to link up with him. Yeah, that's the hard part, you know. Because those carabiners, it's so hard to connect them to anything. The hard part <laughs> is, to, is to put all of our faith in him. Because once you click on the rope, man, you're going wherever the rope goes. Yeah. You're, you're trusting in his strength. See, that's why Easter is so important. Because Jesus said, the same power that brought me out of the grave... The same power that resurrected me from the pit of death will pull you out of the pit of despair. <laughs> I just, how does anyone take this seriously? Is that you and I just have to trust him to pull us out, right? <laughs> ah. <laughs> so... So his, his stage crew just yanked the rope and pulled him out of the pit to make the point. Hooray! He's saved! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> right, listen. That, that's so If you blinked, you would have missed it. Easy, but the reason I did that is because I want all of us to realize, man, you're not strong enough. You don't know enough. You, you, you can't do this. You've got to trust him. You've got to link up with him. You've got to click onto him. And he'll pull you out. Isn't that what it said? He'll put your feet on the solid ground. That's why Easter is so important. Because By the way, that, that John passage, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. That's actually talking about physical for real death and physical for real resurrection. Not... Not... <laughs> Oh, man. Easter is a reminder that Jesus has the power to overcome the pit. That Jesus... <laughs> yep, this is as bad as that Christmas sermon. Jesus is the only one who has overcome the pit of death to become alive. <laughs> I wonder if that's an applause sign that's helping them clap at the moment. And he offers that to you. And I'm going to give you in just a moment an opportunity to do that very thing. <laughs> to do what? In just a moment, I, I, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray. You're going to throw them into a pit and then yank them out with a rope? God would give us the courage if we're here and we've found ourselves in a pit, man. <laughs> and we don't know how to get out of it. Jesus says it starts with me. And so I'm going to pray for us. And at the end of this prayer, if you're 
here and you've been in that pit, man, and you're ready to get out of that pit. You're ready to come to Christ. You're tired of trying to do it yourself. You're tired of trying to have enough strength to know enough to figure it out. I'm just going to ask you to come to the front. Just kind of stand here. We're not going to do anything weird. We're not going to do anything crazy. <laughs> Too late for that. I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. We're going to give you one of these little carabiners. I'm going to lead you in a prayer where we're just kind of clicking it onto Christ. <laughs> well, at least you got something to put on your keychain when you leave potential church. Sadly, I, 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 you know, I just wanted to let you know that while the sermon was going on and we were reviewing, I did check with the church committee to see if potential church can be promoted to a full-blown church. And I was informed that as a result of, well, this sermon and the Christmas sermon that was so bad that uh, they're, well, they've got to stay a potential church. They can't actually be promoted to a real church yet. So it's, it's sad, but, you know, but, you know, the, in fact, from what I understand from the committee, it may be a year or more before they can actually be considered again for a promotion to a real church. So kind of sad for the folks there at Potential Church that, you know, they, they don't actually go to a real church yet. We're just kind of linking up with him. So would you bow your head? Nope. <laughs> no, 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 no. You no. get <laughs> Yeah, again, so, you know, if, hey, you know, if you're looking for Jesus to help you out of the pit of despair, despite what was said in the movie The Princess Bride, you know, all you got to do is hook your carabiner up to Jesus. He'll yank you right out. So, oh man, <laughs> I I need to get off the air because I'm suffering from a bad case of the giggles. I'm afraid I'm going to lose it here. So what'd you think? Um, love to get your feedback on contestant number two for this <laughs> worst Easter sermon of the year contest. Holy guacamole, that was horrible. I gotta go floss my brain with something. <laughs> Whew, maybe I should go on a jog or something. Hmm. Go fly a kite. I don't know. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, oh, that was bad. You can email me. My email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you with the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ as vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Oh, Amen. <laughs>